Now, like we said at the top of the service, today is Palm Sunday. It is the last Sunday of Lent. The Sunday that we remember and reflect on Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem in the last week of his life. And so we thought a fitting topic for this week would be the idea of letting go of popularity. Now, this topic can be taken a number of different ways, and so I just want to say up front what I'm not talking about. So, I am not talking about giving you license to be an intentional jerk. Because I have seen people do this that seemingly go out of their way to brush people the wrong way, to just be abrasive, and then responding with, well, a prophet is never accepted in their own hometown. No, you, you just might be being a jerk. And that's not what we're talking about. This isn't a license to be a jerk. Now, neither are we saying that being popular or being well-liked is necessarily a bad thing. Because I have 100% interact with people who assume that because someone is popular or assume that because someone is well-liked, well, they obviously can't be Christian, right? Because that's not something a Christian would do. And that is just a reverse logic train that is in no way staying on the tracks. So what are we talking about? Well, what I mean when we talk about letting go of popularity is looking at and evaluating how tightly we hold on to the idea of popularity and how we can't let ourselves become defined by anything less than just simply Christ. So why don't we look at our passage first so you can kind of, we can kind of suss this out and see what we're talking about here. So we are going to read about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, and I'm going to start reading in Matthew, this is chapter 21, and I'll start in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Say to them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them across the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that follow were shout, Ah! Oh, alright, so you know what? So I read off of my computer here, I have my computer here, I use it for notes, and there's a big smudge mark over my screen that I probably should have cleaned it beforehand. I'm having a hard time reading the next verse. Could could someone, could someone help me? Could someone help me out there with this? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Perfect. Thank you for that tea. Thank you for that great assist. Now, honestly, most of us, we've heard this story before, right? Yeah, this is most churches preach about or teach about this story at least once a year. You know, most Bibles will label this passage something like Jesus's triumphal entry into the city, right? Something like that. 
But for me, one of the most common questions that comes up about this passage is just why is the crowd so excited to see Jesus? Why are they metaphorically and honestly, literally digging into the history of it, giving him a kingly welcome? Well, it, it's not really because of Jesus's teachings or Jesus's miracles, not really for anything Jesus has done. It's because they think Jesus is coming in as their conqueror. This is the one they think who is going to come in, sweep through, and destroy the Roman occupation. They're exalting Jesus because of what they think Jesus is going to do. What they expect him to do for them. Now, honestly, this gets back at the idea of expectations we talked about a few weeks ago, right? How often our expectations of what we expect God to do often fall short of what God is actually going to do and cause us to become angry and just causes all sorts of problems. But that's not what we're talking about today. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Today, I want to examine the crowd's reaction to Jesus, potentially why they're acting the way they are. And I think maybe a good modern analogy to this might be the idea of sports figures. So athletes are often some of the most loved figures in a given city, right? So me personally, I grew up in the Seattle area in the 90s. So Ken Griffey Jr. owned that city. Seattle, the, Seattle got a new stadium built in like the early 2000s, something like that. And it is still referred to as the house that Griffey built. You know, he, he was king of Seattle. And honestly, still is to some point, you know, that he's still beloved in the, like, the, the Seattle ethos. But this longevity doesn't always hold true. If you want to stick with the sports comparisons, think about LeBron James's relationship with the city of Cleveland. It's had some big ups and downs. So starting from the beginning, LeBron graduates high school, gets drafted into the NBA, to his hometown, Cleveland Cavaliers. It's, it's this kind of perfect magical situation, right? The hometown boy is going to come in, grow into a man, and basically save Cleveland basketball, right? He's called King James. It's going to be amazing. And honestly, during those first couple years, he might have been the most popular person ever in the state of Ohio. But what happened after a few years when he decided to leave? and kind of infamously take his talents to South Beach. The city's perception of him changed instantly. People were burning his jerseys, harassing his family, calling him a traitor. Now, eventually, LeBron came back to Cleveland, ends up winning a title there, and is once again the darling king of Cleveland. But that doesn't last forever he ultimately decides to leave again. This time, going to the most hated of all teams, the Los Angeles Lakers. And once again, he is hated in his hometown. Hate is thrown at him in almost palpable levels. Now, you can probably see where I'm going with this, right? So think back to Jesus's triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. 
How long did that welcome last? Not that long, right? It, it was just a few days before the crowds were chanting very, very different words. It didn't take long for Hosanna and Blessed to quickly turn into crucify him. The city turned on Jesus pretty fast. Jesus stopped fulfilling the role that the people thought he needed to fulfill. So their anger was woken. Now, there's a couple interesting takeaways when looking at this story. The first is honestly just how little control we sometimes have over how people view us. Now, Jesus fundamentally didn't change anything about his message from the beginning of the Passion Week to the end of it, right? He didn't come in saying, yeah, yeah, I'm totally going to overthrow Rome, and then get in and be like, nah, 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 right? He didn't really do anything that should have caused the crowd to turn on him so drastically. Often the way people perceive us or the way they view us or think about us has honestly more to do with what's going on in their lives than it does anything we are actually doing. And honestly, sometimes just a change of scenery or a change of time can alter a relationship. I know Christine said that I could share this story. Uh, I think it's just a funny story. So Christine has a really, really good friend. They first met in elementary school, like fourth or fifth grade, something like that. And when they first met each other, they really, really didn't like each other to the point that like they borderline hated each other. As much as you can have a mortal enemy in you know, fourth, fifth grade, it was these two. Just something about each other rubbed the other one the wrong way and they butted heads. They did not like each other one bit. Eventually they end up going to different schools for a while and then, and I believe high school maybe. They come back together, they go to the same school again, and something's different. They become the best of friends. The personalities of the two didn't really change. They were still the same person. It's not like they completely did an overhaul of, of, of who each other one was. They were essentially the same people. But for some reason, this change of scenery, this change of time impacted the relationship in a very positive way, to the point that they are still the best of friends now, 20 years later. And I think this really gets into an interesting idea when it comes to popularity, is sometimes just how little control we have over it and how we can't really alter what we do to try to please other people. Because ultimately we were not the ones who were in charge of that, but this really gets, I think, at the second big takeaway when it comes to popularity. And that is we have to resist the urge to let outside factors define who we are, right? Every single thing in our lives that we grasp to, to give us meaning will eventually fade away. There is nothing we can put our entire stock in, in this world, that will not fail us, that will not be gone one day. 
whether that is talent in something, being good at something, whether that is intelligence, looks, a relationship, none of that. So if we put our stock, if we put who we are, our defining characteristics, our, if they're tied to any of these things, that they'll eventually go away. If we define ourselves by something like this, we will eventually be severely disappointed. So there's an example of this from my life. Growing up, I was always pretty athletic. It was something I enjoyed doing, it was fun, and I was pretty good at it. And eventually, as time wore on, I became to realize I was really good at it, especially running. I was fast. And as I got into middle school and such, started running competitively, I realized, oh, I was really fast. Really good at sprinting. And eventually it became something that the more I realized how good I was at it, the better I got at it, it became something that defined me. That became who I was. I was Jesse, the fast kid. And eventually this grew and grew until, I mean, obviously, at some point, I got beat. I lost. I was no longer the fastest person. And it really shook me. I, I still remember like the meet, the race that really kind of rocked me. It was this meet, I believe it was in Portland. It was a regional meet, you know, people from all over the states were there and I lost. And this was really the first like big loss I had had. And it really altered how I thought of me. Cause before coming into this, I was always, oh, I was always the fastest person in the room. I was always the best at this. And then it was gone. And it was really devastating because I had put so much stock into this aspect of my life. This was my defining characteristic. Now, there is one thing we can define ourselves by that will not disappoint us. You can probably guess what it is, right? The one thing that can define us that won't ever disappoint is Jesus. And Jesus modeled this so brilliantly. So Jesus enters the city with all of this pomp, with all of this circumstance, right? Just these big parades going on. This was a huge entry into the city. And yet, he has a quiet Passover meal with his closest friends. He goes even further and spends his final few hours of freedom praying praying alone with his heavenly father, God. See, Jesus wasn't defined by what people thought of him, good or bad. He wasn't defined by his popularity. He wasn't defined by relationships. Jesus was defined by his relationship with his father. That was the relationship that mattered. The crowds didn't matter. Not even the disciples in the long run were what mattered the most. It was the conversations, the relationship he had with God that mattered. That's what defined him. So when we talk about letting go of popularity, it's not, we're not saying that popularity is bad or that it's a sin to want people to like you. That, that's obviously not the case. What we're trying to get at is that 
popularity can't define us. We can't live our lives trying to be liked, trying to have people's opinion of us be the thing that matters the most. We can't let what we are in the eyes of other people around us be the defining factor in what drives us forward. It can't be our motivating factor for the things we say and do. Because largely we have no control over that. And the other part of it is that people are fickle. You can be on top of the world one minute and the most hated person in town the next. So the only constant driving force in our lives should be Christ. The, mo the motivating factor behind what we say, what we do, how we live, should be our relationship with Jesus. We should be defined as followers of Christ. If we're looking for something to define us in one sentence, that should be it. Everything else is just incidental and fleeting. Everything else is just fun character flavoring, if you will. Our big defining character element should be Christ. That's what we should carry with us. That's what we should hold on to. Not popularity. Not what the world thinks of us. Not trying to please the people around us. It should be trying to please Christ. Trying to live up to that model that Christ set for us. Trying to follow in the path that Jesus laid for us. That's how we should be defined. And that's what we should hold on to. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to sit together in our varying locations, but to sit together united in you. We thank you that you are a steadfast God who will always stand with us. And we just ask that you could open our eyes and open our hearts to you, to the relationship that we know you want with us. We just ask that as we move forward, you could just constantly be reminding us that you're moving forward with us. We just ask that as we walk throughout this week, as we remember all of the palpable, powerful events of this week, everything that this week commemorates, Lord, that really it ultimately comes down to your love. Your love for us is the driving factor behind this week that we celebrate, that we reflect. And so we just ask that we could reflect that love, that defining characteristic back to you, that we could let that be what drives us, is our love for you and our desire for relationship and fellowship with you. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.